Now, this is before Stalin has been invaded in 1941. This is before Stalin joins the Grand Alliance and becomes the cuddly Uncle Joe that sits on the sofa and smokes cigars with Churchill. But in this period, at least, Stalin is absolutely as villainous as Hitler is. And his regime is absolutely as villainous as Hitler's. So it is absolutely right to talk of two devils, hence the devil's S apostrophe, devil's plural, devil's alliance. Hello and welcome to this week's pod. My name is Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor of Aspects of History and your host. Today I'm speaking with Roger Morehouse. He's a distinguished historian of Central and Eastern Europe and the author of Devil's Alliance, the story of the Nazi-Soviet Pact, also known as the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Whilst many of you, I'm sure, are aware of it, perhaps some of the actual effects are less well known. Roger writes about the 22-month period when Nazi Germany under Hitler and Soviet Russia under Stalin were allied. This may have been a non-aggression pact, but you'll hear about how much of a partnership it was, not least in Poland, but also in carving up Europe. You may have heard Roger talk about the invasion of Poland in my first ever podcast, and so the discussion today helps build up more of a context around that invasion. And as he reminds us, not only the Germans, but the Russians invaded Poland. Roger is the recipient of the Knight's Cross of the Order of Merit from the Polish state, so he certainly speaks with authority. We mention a few items of interest, so I've put those links in the show notes for you. Coming up, I've got a bonus podcast on Tuesday on the top 10 historic families from world history in honour of Simon Seabag Montefiore's book. He was on the pod a couple of weeks back. It was due out last week, but due to a last minute argument between myself and me over one particular family, I've had to postpone, but it will be out on Tuesday. Elsewhere, I've got Peter Hughes on writing history in these febrile times, Lawrence Friedman on the politics of command post-1945, and Tessa Dunlop on the TV series The Crown and the courtship of Philip and Elizabeth, plus more coming up, as well as top 10 movies with real-life movie director Tim Hewitt. If you can, please do subscribe, or even leave me a nice review, but in the meantime, I'll hand you over to my chat with Roger Morehouse. Okay, Roger Morehouse, welcome back to the Aspects of History podcast. Hello, Ollie. A great pleasure to be back again. Well, it, it is actually a, emotional for me because you were my first ever guest on this really? podcast. Yes, um, and you were very generous. Uh, very first love never dies, you know. Indeed, indeed. A very and you were very uh, gentle with me as well. Um, <laughs> so we on that occasion. Well, we... it was your first time. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Now, on that occasion, we were discussing the invasion of Poland uh, in 1939, which yeah. is the subject of your, it's your latest book, actually, uh, First to Fight. Yes, that was the latest published book, which was out in 2019, yeah. Uh, yeah, we've got another one coming up. Um, oh, we can talk about that, yeah. yeah. Um, it was also called Poland 1939 for uh, those of li those listeners US. in America. Those of an American persuasion, yeah. Um, so what we're t talking about today is, is actually the Aspects of History Book of the Month um, next month, which is your book that I think was a previous but one, yeah. Devil's Alliance, the Devil's yeah. Alliance. And the this Devil's is, Alliance. yes, and this is the, this, uh, we're going to talk about the uh, Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact, the Nazi-Soviet Pact, the Hitler-Stalin Pact, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. um, That's it. What what is its official its official on the sort of document in in um... uh, it's the uh, the official document says it's the German Soviet Non Aggression Pact, uh, which was its official title, um, which is a bit anodyne to be honest. So it's, you know it has those various uh, nicknames, <clears throat> the Hitler Stalin Pact. I think you know that's very much shorthand because not you know Hitler and Stalin didn't sign the pact neither, you know neither of them ever met so molotov ribbentrop is probably i mean i tend to use that one the two foreign ministers they actually met they actually signed the documents so that's um, that's a quite a good name and nazi soviet pact is always is always good although i, I tend to get 
um, interrupted by um, by angry Poles sometimes, and I call it the Nazi-Soviet Pact because they object to um, um, you know using Nazi instead of German and using Soviet instead of Russian because they will they prefer to call things what they are. Um, but that's uh, I think that's quite a niche sort of um, you know, Polish view and a, a niche angry Polish view I would say as well. Um, so yeah, Hitler, Hitler-Stalin Pact, Nazi-Soviet Pact, all of those are valid. Well, from a Polish standpoint, that standpoint, that view is completely understandable. And I wanted to sort of start by asking you the relationship between, because it was such an incredible um, treaty to have been signed. It was a huge Mm. shock, uh, probably, you know, a huge shock to those people outside the immediate um, negotiations, I should imagine, Mm. on the, the, the Russian and German side. But what was the thinking behind behind it? Because it, it just, you know, th- th- this wasn't long in the making either, was it? Um, no, it was. I mean, well, I should say that not, um, non-aggression packs were, were pretty common in the 1930s. So it was a sort of a common um, tool of diplomacy in the 1930s where, you know, um, countries would sign sort of 10 year non-aggression pact and there was, you know, there's a lot of this going around non-aggression. The idea of non-aggression it sounds a bit peculiar that people would sign a treaty that, that to swear that they wouldn't attack attack one another. But bear in mind, you had the, um, I think it was the Kellogg-Briand Pact as well. There was various, you know, these pacts where where people basically are um, trying to um, disavow the idea of the use of force in diplomacy. So this is a very fashionable thing through the 1930s. Um, and there are lots of non-aggression pacts. The Poles had non-aggression pacts with with Germany and with um, the Soviet Union at the time and others. So it's it's very, very fashionable. But having said that, in 1939, when it was signed, it's it's it, it's literally unthinkable for, for most of the outside world that Nazi Germany, Hitler's Germany and Stalin's Soviet Union could actually find any sort of common ground at all, never mind actually sign a, a non-aggression pact, because both sides to a large extent had defined themselves by their opposition to the other, right? Um, so, you know, Hitler's Germany, you know, since it came to power in 1933, established himself, uh, Hitler established himself as his dictatorship um, towards the end of 1934, um, became, you know, the, the sort of a, a, almost a cartoon propaganda hate figure for, for the Soviet Union and Nazism was seen as, the, you know, the ultimate evil. Uh, in Soviet propaganda and vice versa. So the idea that they would come together is literally unthinkable. Um, but it has its origins really in the the aftermath, first of all, of the um, the Munich Treaty of, of September 1938, which is really the high watermark, I suppose, of, of appeasement in terms of um, the, the, the efforts of the Western powers to deal with Germany. To deal with German aggression, to deal with deal with German grievances as well, because it's all roped in together. Um, Germany had some reason to to be aggrieved in the aftermath of the First World War, uh, and a lot of you know appeasement is a is a legitimate uh, attempt to meet those grievances, uh, and in the hope that by meeting them fairly, that that um, you know Germany's aggressive tendencies under Nazism could be could be somehow assuaged. So, no, I think we have to, to some extent, understand appeasement, I think, a little bit better rather than just sort of damning it as um, as sort of rolling over and, and, and giving an aggressor everything they want. Um, it was it was honestly meant, and I think I think um, to a large extent was justified. But anyway, um, with the high watermark of appeasement, which is the, the, um, the Munich Treaty, which is a pretty shameful event and it's a pretty shameful document in the sense that you know, the Czechs weren't given a place at the negotiations. Everything was negotiated above their heads um, between, you know, Germany and the Western powers. Um, that that was supposed to be, in the Western understanding, was supposed to be Germany's last sort of territorial demand. That's what Hitler described it as in the negotiations, even. He said this is this was the last territorial demand in Europe. Now, when, you know, Hitler then subsequently... Um, invades uh, the rest of Bohemia, Bohemia and Moravia, the rest of the Czech lands in uh, March of 1939, then you know, the Western powers pretty much realise pretty soon that they've been duped effectively, that that, that wasn't Hitler's last uh, territorial demand, and that um, appeasement as a way of 
you know, legitimately trying to defang Nazism um, has failed at that point. So, you know, the spring of 1939 is quite crucial in that sort of development of, of, um, of a more robust response to German expansionism, shall we say. And that's when you get this sort of guarantee that's given to Poland, for example, Poland and Romania, both given Western guarantees that, you know, should they be attacked, that um, they'll be, you know, assisted in their resistance. And that's where um, Hitler begins, or not, not necessarily Hitler, but others around the, the Nazi sort of hierarchy in the, in, in the, in the top levels of the, uh, of the administration there, start thinking a little bit more outside the box in terms of how to, um, how to further their aims, given that the, the Western powers might be more robust in their resistance. And at the same time, the Soviets are also growing a little bit, um, as they would have put it, I suppose, tired of uh, Western, as they would see it, complacency regarding the Soviet Union. So there's a, there's a, a, a strong trend in the Soviet Union of, of being um, certainly dismayed that they weren't invited to the discussions over over the Munich Treaty in the summer of uh, autumn of 1938, uh, and feeling that that treaty itself was somehow, you know, um, encouraging of Nazism rather than standing up to them, it was somehow encouraging, and it was a blow to sort of collective security and all of that sort of thing. So there are some, I think, legitimate grievances to some extent on the Soviet side as well. So there's a there's a shift at the same time. Stalin makes a couple of speeches in the spring of 1939 where he says, you know, basically that the West can't, it can't rely on the Soviets to sort of bail them out, you know, and in, to, to some degree, it's, they're, they're edging towards a policy of every man for himself. Um, so that's the sort of the grand strategic background, is the, or the grand diplomatic background, is that they're, they're, they're moving towards some sort of, um, you know, some sort of arrangement is on the horizon that, um, you know, perhaps these um these alignments are not as fixed as we might have imagined uh, and then of course there's poland poland is the is is the the catalyst really for the nazi soviet pact um, um as it comes about in, in august of 39. um unlike czechoslovakia poland was never going to um essentially lie down without a fight it just wasn't it's not in the polish character it's not it's not in polish history um poland of course is is wedged at this time at this time between Germany and the Soviet Union and both Germany and the Soviet Union have claims on Polish territory. So Poland was um, uh, partitioned between between then Prussia and, and Russia and, and Austria as, you, as you'll know from the late 18th century through until 1918 it only re-emerges as an independent state with the collapse of those three countries in 1918. So it, it essentially re-establishes itself at the expense of Germany, Austria, and uh, and Russia, um, with a sort of core of, of uh, Polish inhabited territory uh, in its centre, but with large minorities, German minorities in the West, um, Belarusian, Ukrainian minorities in the East, and so on. So the large number of minorities. So, it, you know, it's there, it's almost a, a living humiliation in a way, both of Germany and of the Soviet Union on the other side. So both of them, are, both of them are equally um, revisionists of the of the uh, Versailles Treaty. So they want it revised, they want it scrapped, they want to overturn that entire post First World War settlement. Both of them, you know, we 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 habitually attach that label to to Hitler's regime, saying that it was revisionist of Versailles. But we forget that Stalin was absolutely as revisionist as Hitler was, and where their interests um, aligned most perfectly is in the destruction of Poland in 1939. So you can see over Poland, that's the point at which both of them can get a, get over all of that political baggage of the previous years and calling each other all sorts of names. Uh, and they can actually collude in something that both of them see as hugely beneficial, which is the destruction of Poland. So that that's the, the sort of root of it. And uh, <clears throat> this is a very long description of how we get to the Nazi-Soviet pact. I'm, I'm, I'm loving every second. <laughs> I'm sure the listeners are. <laughs> um, so those are sort of those are the sort of long term um, uh, drivers of it. And then shorter term, you know, you've got 
the Germans basically tried to sort of agitate against Poland, initially asking for demanding, you know, things like um, you know, Danzig back. Danzig was a free state that was set up by the League of Nations because it didn't want to give give Danzig to either side, Poland or Germany, at the end of the First World War. So it was set up as a free state, run by the effectively by by its own Senate and by the League of Nations, <clears throat> and um, that was one of those primary sort of um, complaints that the Germans had was that was that they'd lost Danzig uh, as a major port in the Eastern Baltic um, and wanted it back. And of course, it was about 90 and 95 percent German inhabited as well. So that, you know, let's not forget it is essentially a German city. Um, so, you know, Poland was promised access to the Baltic in the 14 points at the end of the First World War. Um, so, you know, that effectively Danzig was one of those places that couldn't go to either side for those reasons. So it's set up as a, as a free state. So that rankles with the Germans. They start demanding that back. They start demanding um, access across the Polish corridor, which is, of course, that strip of land that has been uh, created to give Poland access to the sea. So they're asking for, um, you know, a, an, an extra, extra, extra territorial, I need to say extraterrestrial, extraterritorial um, access across the, um, the Polish corridor. That's denied. The Poles are not going to lie down in the same way as the Czechs did. That just isn't going to happen. So they stand fast, and of course they're backed by this time by the British and the French, who are both, you know, they've issued the guarantee in the, at the end of March, and they're both, you know, standing as the Poles think, four square behind behind the Poles, saying yes, we will support you, and so on. So that bolsters Polish Polish um, um, uh, stubbornness, if you like, for want of a better better word, <clears throat> resolute uh, attitude towards these German demands. Um, so with, with, you know, this prompts the, the Germans to sort of think a bit more laterally and they, they, need to, they need to think about if they do attack Poland, what happens to the other side? We've got the Soviet Union, perennially hostile. What do you do? So, of course, you can buy, you can buy Soviet complacency, compliance, if you like, by offering them half of Poland. And effectively, that's what Hitler does. He's tremendously generous with um, uh, offering, Stalin, offering you know, Stalin other people's territory. So he offers Stalin, you know, Eastern Poland. He offers, he says Stalin can have a free, free, a free ride, a free hand in uh, the Eastern Baltics, so the Baltic states, Finland, and so on, and down in Romania. So he's, he's actually promising an awful lot of territory. That's uh, a vast amount Stalin. of territory, isn't it's it? It's a vast amount of territory. None of which, of course, is his to give away, crucially. So as I always say, that Hitler's very generous with other people's territory. Um, and he sees this from Hitler's perspective, the Nazi-Soviet pact, as it's negotiated, uh, it's finally signed on the 23rd of August, but it, it gets him out of a diplomatic hole because he's, he's been agitating against Poland. He's been talking about, you know, Polish, the perfidy of the Poles, that the Poles have been attacking, you know, German, um, I, German farmsteads and so on across the border. They haven't, actually. It's all, it's all you know, SS and, and uh, German military intelligence have been doing this to, to, to create propaganda stories. And I, I actually talked about that in the, in the later book, in First to Five. Yeah. Um, so that's, they've kind of painted themselves into a corner where you know, something has to give. You either back down against Poland and humiliate yourself, or you have to go ahead and attack. And the only way to go ahead and attack, and at the same time, you know, make sure that, the, that, the, that the, the Soviets were out of the picture was to give them chunks of territory. So that's essentially why Hitler does it. So in the short term, it's, it's basically a, a, you know, an expedient to get, you know, get him over that sort of that problem that he created for himself, which was the, the aggression against Poland. Um, and for Stalin, as I said, it's territory. Um, he's getting that territory back that, that the Soviet Union had lost during the Civil War and the Revolution, all that chaos uh, at the end of the First World War. Um, he's getting a really good economic deal with, um, with Hitler's Germany, which is a crucial part, which is not generally understood. Um, so it's, it, it, it's actually one of the most important um, economic relationships the Soviet Union ever had, effectively, was, was actually with, with Germany for, for Finnish technology. So they were getting finished technological goods, particularly military equipment. And in return, the Germans got raw materials from the Soviet Union. That was the plan. It, the, the economic relationship really didn't work out anything like it was planned, but, it, but it was, um, that was a, a key driver, particularly for the Soviets in this relationship. Um, and of course, on the, on the Soviet side, there's also an ideological element to this, because you know, 
the Soviet Union is still interested um, in the expansion of communism. It sees communism as a universal creed. It's you know the solution to all the world's problems. It's seen as um, philosophically and historically it, uh, um, inevitable um, that you know this is the this is the end point of human development effectively. So. You know, they need to, not only for their own survival, but in philosophical terms, they need to expand communism. So that, so they do. I and mean, that's part of the plan is that, you know, actually, uh, not only are you expanding into those territories that's, that Stalin's going to get from Hitler, but you also have the possibility that war will return to Europe. And that for the Soviets, as long as they were out of it and declaring their neutrality, they saw war as the sort of, uh, as the driver of, 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 Political events. So, you know, if, if war returned to Europe between between Britain and uh, Britain, France, and Germany, then from the Kremlin's perspective, this was all good because it, you know the end result could well be communism. That's how they saw it. So it was one of those sort of accelerators of history was warfare so in the in the Soviet mind. Um, so they're quite willing to you know essentially bring that about or facilitate it in some way by by colluding with Hitler short term. So there's no real meeting of minds. It's very you know it's very uh it's a it's a short-term strategic arrangement so and all of this crucially all of this stuff about the territory and so on the division of territory is all contained we should stress in the secret protocols of the nazi soviet pact the text of the nazi soviet pact is very very anodyne uh is very uh same as every other non-aggression pact of the 1930s simply says that for a period of 10 years we promise not to attack one another we will we will deal with any upcoming problems via mediation and so on very anodyne. And there's this secret protocol to the Nazi Soviet pact, which was, as the name suggests, supposed to be secret, which basically says, you know, that we will, in the event of what they, in this, they use this wonderful euphemism of, um, in the event of a political reorganization, and that means basically war, um, then it says, you know, we will essentially divide up Central Europe between us, along the lines that I've, that I've outlined before. Um, so that's the sort of key document. So you often get Actually, prior to really the, the war in Ukraine, um, as it uh, um, broke out in February, um, you used to get, um, if you talk about the Nazi-Soviet pact online, on Twitter and so on, you used to get these you know, endless Kremlin trolls who'd say, it was just a non-aggression non pact, you know, show me where it says, you know, because they they're still denying the secret protocol. And they're kind of pointing to the Nazi-Soviet pact and saying, there's nothing wrong with this, it's just a non-aggression pact. Yes, you're absolutely right. But all the juicy stuff, all the nefarious stuff is in the secret protocol. And that's the thing that they try and deny, which the Soviets still were denying right up to the end of the Soviet Union, incidentally. So only Gorbachev actually you know, acknowledged that the, that the secret protocol existed uh, right at the end of the Soviet Union, which is insane, but there we are. And is there a copy of the secret protocol that's um, been accessible to, to historians yes the, the 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 text both of the both of the um i mean the, the treaty itself obviously was well known right at the time because that was publicized at the time the secret protocol as i said is the juicy bit um and the the americans got hold of a copy of it from when they were in berlin at the end of the war um so they actually tried to publish it's quite an interesting story because the americans published the secret protocol in from memory about 1947 they had this collection of documents that had all been essentially looted from berlin um, at the end of the war and um so they found this in in somebody's file in the for german foreign office um and published it state department published it in 47 and stalin basically threw his hands up in horror at the time and said you know this is a falsification of history he said this is a falsification of history uh which is a bit rich coming from Stalin. The master uh, of falsifying. The history. master of falsifications of history. And he um, he published a, a pamphlet in response, which basically explained all the reasons for the Nazi Soviet pact, all of which, of course, were entirely benign from his perspective, and in the same breath, denying that there's any secret protocol at all and saying it's a Western invention, it's a Western provocation, blah, blah, blah. The same sort, I mean, look, the same sort of wording, the same sort of mentality that you, you know, this kind of, this kind of willful lying in the face of, of overwhelming, you know, evidence that you still hear from Mr. Lavrov today, you know, it's the same sort of mentality. Um, leopards don't tend to change their spots very often. Um, 
So that was the Soviet was Soviet position all the way through, really, was that they denied the existence of the secret protocol and tried to try to um, explain away the Nazi Soviet pact in as benign a, uh, a way as possible, basically saying, well, we knew that Hitler was going to attack us. So all we were doing was buying time and all of this stuff, where, which completely denies the fact that they were basically colluding with Hitler for 22 months for their own reasons. I mean, it's not like, not like it was a love affair. As I said, they had very good reasons to do so. Um, but it was portrayed purely as a kind of a defensive measure, which it absolutely wasn't. If anything, it's, it's more, more offensive than defensive. So, you know, there's a whole sort of complex of reasons. And, and sorry, to go, go all the way up, all the way forward with this, um, right to the end of his life, Molotov, who'd signed the Nazi Soviet Pact and the Secret Protocol uh, in the Kremlin in 1939, Amazingly, he only died in 1986, Molotov, uh, and he was asked really late in his life um, by, by a Soviet journalist, uh, did an interview with him, I think in about 82 or 83, um, and asked him, I said, you know, what about this, what about the Nazi-Soviet pact, what about this secret protocol, was that a real thing? Because of course, you know, the Soviet narrative denied its existence, said it was a Western invention. And Molotov, who had long since been off the scene in the Soviet politics, so he's long in retirement, so on. And this is 1980, you know, early 1980s. So, well, he's, he re replied like a good Bolshevik. He replied, of course, he said, I was very, very close to this. He'd signed it, right? I was very close to this matter, and I can categorically assure you that it didn't exist. It's a Western invention. Okay, so he's still lying, you know, a couple of years before his death. So they're still officially denying the existence of the protocol all the way up. To the to the very end, very end, and it's actually Gorbachev that uh, that uh, uh, reviews this and uh, and and acknowledges its existence, as he does with the, the you know, um, uh, Soviet authorship of the Katyn killings. Is that's acknowledged as well, right at the end of the Soviet Soviet era. So there's this brief flourishing of truth at the end of the the Soviet um, episode under Gorbachev, which is very laudable. Then of course it all goes backwards again. Mm. Well, well, we should. Well, we'll certainly talk about Katyn, but um, I just wanted to uh, zoom in a bit on on the characters involved because you mm. you know you've you've sort of described Molotov there. Uh, Molotov and Rob Ribbentrop are kind of doing the um, the kind of legwork. Yeah. Um, but Stalin uh, negotiations seem to take place in Moscow, and Stalin does make an appearance, doesn't? Yes, he, he does. Yeah, and, he, he, he does. Rather kind of masterful. Yeah, he is. He's absolutely masterful. Um, he kind of takes over the um, negotiations, and it's interesting, as we said at the top, with the with the name that goes down, you know, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, and Molotov being kind of synonymous with it on the Soviet side, because this is really Stalin's policy. Um, I mean, it is it is very, I mean, it's very devious. It's quite brilliant, I think. You know, this is one of the reasons I don't quite, I never quite understood the Russian squeamishness up until comparatively recently the current russian squeamishness about the nazi soviet pact because i think if you own it if you say this was the policy and yes you know stalin wanted to expand communism and he wanted to you know take territory back and he wanted an economic relationship it's it's quite you know it's, it's devious certainly but it's quite genius as a policy um i mean as long as you can swallow the fact that this is a a vicious gangsterish regime, uh, which is the problem. That's what they can't swallow. Um, then you know you can say, yeah, that was actually you know that was a, a master step. It's almost like you know it's like something from The Godfather. Um, yeah, you get all this territory. You have to see that's yeah. how you have to see Hitler and Stalin. It's like two two sort of um, you know New York um, um, mafia bosses going head to head, and they hate each other, but they're going to collude in certain instances to get what they want, and then they'll turn on each other afterwards. That's what it is, right? Um, but yeah, so that, so this is this is Stalin's policy, and he does lead the negotiations. Um, it's interesting that the the German foreign minister, a uh, German, sorry, the German um, ambassador in Moscow, um, von der Schulenburg. Mm. Um, he goes to those negotiations and sits in because obviously he's he's the sort of man on the spot. Um, and he hadn't, he, I think he'd been in, in Moscow for seven years or something, and he hadn't actually seen Stalin up until Yeah, that, it was amazing that, reading Which that. is amazing, yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, Stalin very much is, you know, is, is the owner of, of, this, of this policy, absolutely. It, it originates with him and he negotiates it. 
but the two characters are interesting. Um, Ribbentrop is really thoroughly unpleasant. Um, jumped up, um, self-obsessed, rather stupid, actually, um, by all counts. And he's he one of those people that particularly... very... Sorry to interrupt you there. He, he just didn't come across as particularly effective, really. No, no, actually, absolutely not. Uh, and I think partly because of that stupidity. Um, and I, I, I don't use the word lightly, you know, um, but he does appear to be actually quite, you know, thick. Um, um, and he was really, he was one of those people who was very kind of rude to those beneath him, like contemptuous of those beneath him. And uh, sort of very fawning to those above. And it's a really unpleasant trait, I always think. When you when when people we've all met people that are like that and and he certainly was like that. Um, so of course Hitler th Hitler thought he was a genius. So after the negotiation of the Nazi Soviet Pact, um, he was briefly descri described as Germany's new Bismarck, you know, as a sort of great statesman, which is laughable in retrospect. I think it was probably laughable then for those that knew Ribbentrop. Um, so he was essentially it was entirely you know a case of his master's voice he was uh, on the phone to hitler a lot so he was conferring with hitler there are various points of you know contentious points in the negotiations where he had to get, excuse himself and go uh, and and sort of speak to hitler on the telephone and things like that um so you know he was really just his master's voice in in the negotiations but it was portrayed as something much grander than that uh and molotov is is a rather similar character that he's 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 rise to to the, to play the play the uh, take the position of foreign minister in the soviet union was entirely due to his sort of dog-like loyalty to stalin he didn't have much in the way of um you know uh, attractive traits of his own whether whether they be intelligence or anything else i mean one thing that, that they do say was that he, he had this um superhuman ability to sit through sort of eight hours of, of politburo speeches which is you know if that's what it takes to get ahead in the kremlin then so be it but uh, that certainly seems to be the case with molotov so they're both kind of to, to a large extent non-entities that you know by hook or by crook and by chance and all the rest of it are, are where they are and, and append their names to history well, I didn't want to go too much into detail into the, the, the invasion of Poland because that was the subject of our chat, which yeah. if listeners want to find out more, if you haven't listened to it yet, it's the first ever episode. But um, the, the two sides do to carve up Poland. Mm. And what I wanted to talk about was how they dealt with certain groups of people, um, sort of mm. ferrying groups of people between each other. And I'm talking about the Germans were interested in, in getting back German communists mm. who had fled to Russia and, and also um, Jews were fleeing the Germans, but then were not treated well by the Russians either. I just wanted to explore that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it is interesting that um, although the, our, our sort of popular narrative of this time, you know, the Western narrative still talks about the phony war which we really have to get over. I mean, the idea that, you know, in September, October and into, you know, up until, in that six months, up until May 1945, uh, 40, uh, sorry, 1940, the attack West, uh, the attack on uh, the British and the French, Belgians and others. Um, the idea that there's nothing happening in that period, it really needs to be consigned to the proverbial dustbin of history. Um, there's not much happening to British troops or French troops at the time, but there's an awful lot happening in Eastern Europe. Uh, and this, of course, is, is leading into the heyday of the other thing that the Western narrative has a massive blind spot about, which is this 22 months of active collaboration between Hitler's, so Hitler's uh, Germany and Stalin's Soviet Union. So they don't just kind of, you know, um, divide up Central Europe between them and then sit there doing nothing and kind of carry on snarling at each other. There's active collaboration between them, which is what you alluded to there. So, um, you know, bear in mind Poland is kind of Poland ceases to exist effectively. So the government, the government uh, escapes. The West sets itself up ultimately in 1940. Sets it up in sets itself up in London, uh, and tries its best to, you know, from there to sort of, you know, marshal the diplomatic forces to to promise to restore Poland at some point in the future. Uh, and of course, it's 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 
pulling the strings remotely of what becomes the Polish underground in Poland, in, in German and Soviet occupied Poland at the time, which again, another one of those um, uh, evidences of, of Western myopia um, seems to be forgotten in terms of the, the annals of, you know, underground resistance history and all of that from World War II. Um, very rarely do uh, does the Polish underground get mentioned, and it really should because it's absolutely front center. It's much more thoroughgoing, much more effective um, than than the Maquis, which to us is still the still the sort of the benchmark. Um, so that's another point that we you know we need to we need to shift our focus generally. The West the the, the Western narrative of World War II is frightfully kind of Anglo and Franco centric, and it really needs to shift. Um, to to take in what's going on in Central Europe because that's Completely where the agree, war is Roger, happening yeah. to a large extent. Anyway, rant over. Um, so uh, yeah, so this period there's 22 months of collaboration. So there's this economic collaboration I'm talking about. You've got four economics treaties assigned in that time. So throughout the 22 months, there are negotiations going on all the time. So as soon as they sign one treaty, they start negotiations on the next one. Um, so that's what one level, and then you've got you know, strategic collaboration on, on another level, um, not only in 39 with the, with the campaign to defeat Poland on both sides, but but beyond that as well. And then you've got this sort of um, political security collaboration. So the, the follow up, interestingly, the follow up to the Nazi Soviet pact a month later, on the 28th of September 39 was called the, um, the German Soviet Boundary and Friendship Treaty, all things, Boundary and Friendship Treaty. That's nice. That's nice. Yeah. It's a lovely name, um, and they basically it's sort sort of um, you know a follow up to the to the Nazi Soviet Pact. You know they have together by that point destroyed Poland. They both occupy Poland. Poland, of course, is still fighting. It's the, the, the last the last Polish forces in the field, regular forces in the field, to, to lay down their arms do so on the sixth of October. So they're still fighting, but the, the Germans and Soviets are back in the Kremlin signing this follow up, um, and that. Contains the phrase that, that that they would, both of them would collaborate in the uh, suppression of Polish agitation. So Poland has already been wiped politically from the map, but they are worried about this idea that that you know that there would be a Polish underground, which is already effectively forming. Um, so they collaborate in its suppression. That's in the treaty. Um, so both of them essentially have the, carry out the same policies. Incidentally, so you know the what the, the the nazis do in the west which is this quite well known now i think is this policy of of a, of a sort of social decapitation of, of polish society where you um you know take out essentially anyone that is either minded to resist or anyone that might potentially become a leader of resistance so you know anyone that's educated anyone that is um, you know, an MP or a doctor or a uh, or a, a, a former politician or an army officer or whatever might be what might be, anyone with some standing in society is essentially viewed at very least viewed with suspicion. Very good chance you'd be arrested. Very good chance that you'd be taken out essentially, essentially and shot. And tens of thousands of poles are by the Germans for having committed no crime except for you know this is kind of preventative justice in effect this is the Germans saying these are the people that might be the leaders of the resistance we'll just take them out and shoot them in advance just in case that you know that to, to prevent that from happening Soviets do exactly the same thing in the east incidentally this all happens through the spring of 1940 and onwards Soviets are doing exactly the same thing except their list of of um, undesirable occupations and undesirable uh, individuals is much longer um, so you've got a essentially class war going on. So anyone that, that sort of doesn't fit the criteria, anyone that isn't uh, essentially a farm labourer or a proletarian is under suspicion. So anyone with property, anyone with connections, anyone connected to the old regime, um, army officers, um, merchants, of course, the middle class, anyone that has, you know, um, a, a modicum of wealth, even by, the, by that time, that's all history anyway. Um, so they're, they're, and even all the way down, ridiculously, all the way down to you know people like stamp collectors, because knowledge is dangerous in the Soviet Union, right? Because knowledge implies that you know if you if you know anything about the outside world, you're dangerous because you know how awful the Soviet Union is, right? So that's that's as thorough as it was. So both of them have this policy of effectively effectively 
um, decapitating Polish society. And of course, in that in that scenario, in this in the in the in the Soviet zone, that applies to Jews as well. So you have a lot of Jews who are persecuted by the Soviets for um, religious reasons, because of course it's an atheist state. So if you're if you're an observant Orthodox Jew, then that's not allowed. Um, if you're a Jew who's a merchant, who's got a bit of bit of wealth about you, perhaps maybe got a business, that's not allowed, right? So you'd be persecuted for that. So although they have this sort of headline of tolerance and and you know everyone's the strict equality and all that which is what a lot of for a lot of people was the great appeal of the soviet union perverse though it was but that was that was the appeal that, that a lot of people in the west certainly were seduced by in reality you know unless you were absolutely at the bottom of, of the heap unless you were as i said you know a, a, a farm laborer or, or, a, or an urban proletarian you were in trouble so for you know jews for example very often you have this this bizarre situation where Jews are trying to escape West after an experience. It's, it's heart, in your book. It's heartbreaking. There's a moment where there are Jews fleeing the Soviets. Yeah. Um, and there's a German officer, I think, trying to sort of almost pleading for them not to come over. Yeah. Yeah. He says, "Where are you going? Don't you know that we're going to kill you?" He says that, right? And mm. it, but this is the this is the the unenviable state of what we might call Polish, you know, Polish society under occupation, under this dual occupation. It's like a, I remember one of the descriptions I read of it was like a massive anthill that's been sort of shaken in an earthquake. And everyone is, is, is buzzing around, milling around, not knowing where to go and, and, and being pushed hither and hither and yon by, by forces way beyond their control. Um, and you, like I said, you have people trying to escape into the Soviet zone because they think life will be better there. And then you have people trying to escape out of the Soviet zone because they, they it can't be possibly worse than the communism that's being imposed on. Them. And yet it could, of course. So it, this this dual occupation of Poland was absolutely brutal. And of course, there's deportations going on. There's real, you know, relocations on the in the West. The Germans were, were, were great fans of you know, these sort of mass salute mass solutions to social problems and to geopolitical problems i just deport people so deport people here there and here there and everywhere the soviets are doing the same with anyone that's that looks at the muscans in the eastern zone deported to siberia you know as many as a million poles are deported by the soviets to siberia in that 22 month period so it, it's it's a real it's an area that we need to understand better. As I said, this is this is starting in that period of the what we call the phony war, and going in all the way up to um, op Operation Barbarossa in June '41. So this, this, this is why I came with this book. To the, the title of it is crucial: "The Devil's Alliance." And I'm sure this won't have escaped you, Ollie, because I know you're a highly educated man. But devils. S apostrophe, so two devils, right? Um, and it's something that, uh, that people still get wrong. I remember when I was promoting the book a few years ago, um, going to, you know, talking to school groups, A-level groups and so on, and saying, uh, and sort of testing them and saying, you know, how, you know, how well have you been trained on your apostrophes, which isn't a thing in, you know, in schools these days. It was when I was at school, but not anymore. And a few of them did, did realize, and I think this is one of the fundamental problems of this Western narrative, is that in that period, now this is before Stalin has been invaded in 1941, this is before Stalin joins the Grand Alliance and becomes the cuddly Uncle Joe that sits on the sofa and smokes cigars with Churchill. But in this period, at least, Stalin is absolutely as villainous as Hitler is, and his regime is absolutely as villainous as Hitler's. So it is absolutely right to talk of two devils, hence the devil's S apostrophe, devil's plural devil's alliance um so that's that again is one of these sort of blind spots of the of the western narrative war which you know um i i hope i'm i'm trying slowly to change it's a bit like trying to turn around a super tanker um but this is one of the things that i would like to try and change is to shift that focus into central europe as i said earlier and to get across this idea of, of, of Soviet villainy in that, in that early phase of the war, because it's an absolutely villainous regime. Well, there's none other more villainous um, an, an event than Katyn, which yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's become more well-known since the film, the Polish film was made. Yeah. 
but I still suspect it's not that well known. Um, yeah. Katyn, where, where they, where the Soviets wiped out tens of thousands of, of Polish soldiers. and, and Yeah, Polish, Polish officer class, effectively. Um, so they, they took, they took something like uh, a third of a million prisoners um, of uh, Polish military and others, you know, police officers, border guards and others, uh, when they invaded um, Eastern Poland. And it is an invasion, by the way. That's another that's another part of the narrative that um, you know, as I know we're jumping ahead a bit, but that that traditionally gets um, or is root of some confusion because you know rather like rather like Mr. Putin in February, where he called his invasion you know a special military operation. They did the same thing in 1939 uh, in the invasion of, uh, of Eastern Poland. You know, calling it um, uh, again. I think it was a special operation. They they didn't use the word war. Um, they even the propaganda described it as sort of a humanitarian policing operation because Poland was falling apart and they had to do something to help the Ukrainians and the Belarusians and so on. So all sorts of ob deliberate obfuscations, many of which are very, very durable and still get aired by by the gullible today. Um, so, uh, yeah, so um, I forgot where I was coming into that. Katyn. Yes, Katyn, sorry. Yeah, so they, they took about a third of a million prisoners amongst the, the Poles. And those were sort of um, sifted. So anyone that that, that was, you know, uh, not an officer and was of peasant or a, or a, a urban proletarian stock would basically be released. And then they had this sort of hardcore of the officers. Um, it's about twenty-two odd thousand um, that had declared their unwillingness to collaborate with communism uh, and their unwillingness to accept communism. Uh, a few of them, a few of them, very small number of the Polish officers actually did, you know, were sympathetic and they were, they became the, the later backbone of what was known as the Berling Army, um, which was set up to fight alongside the Red Army, Poles that set up to fight along, alongside the Red Army. So a small number, not least among them, um, Berling himself, who gave his name to that army. Um, did agree to collaborate, but the vast majority didn't because of their, their class, because of their nationalist sentiments, all of those things. Uh, and they were put in a number of camps and sort of kept there and uh, as POWs. And ultimately, in March of 1940, the order was given to apply what, what the, the Kremlin euphemistically described as this supreme punishment to them, which was that they were to be taken out and shot. And from those three camps, they were set, taken out to various killing sites uh, in batches and uh, and executed with a shot to the back of the head. Um, 22,000 odd. There is, um, and of course, this was then, you know, systematically and routinely denied by the Soviets from then on, essentially until 1989. Uh, the Germans they blamed the Nazis, the didn't they? Yeah, and they blamed the Nazis. They tried to pin the cat and killings on the Nazis. Um, at Nuremberg as well. So they tried to have it put on the charge sheet at Nuremberg, which is, you know, quite astonishing. Um, thankfully, the Western powers were um, rather more circumspect and didn't actually believe it or, or didn't believe the evidence that was being presented, which had been concocted by the, by the Soviets. Um, and of course, the, 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 the killing sites were discovered or the first one to be discovered was at Katyn itself, which is one of these killing sites. And that, that gives its name to these various killings. So it's not one massacre, it's many massacres. So we should really, I always try and talk about the Katyn massacres. because It makes it clear that it's not just one massacre. Um, so one of these sites at Katyn was discovered by the Germans um, after they'd rolled through uh, in 41. It's discovered in 43. Um, they start exhumations of these of these um, Polish officers, uh, and it's pretty obvious from things like pocket diaries and so on, and scraps of newspaper that some of the bodies have on them. They're all they weren't none of them were naked, for example. They were all in uniform with a lot of their kit and so on and personal possessions on them. So you could see from there's a couple of diary entries that are known about where you know the diary entries stop abruptly in the spring of 1940. It's pretty clear who killed them, and the Germans make that publicize that fact of course the soviets then cry foul and say well it's obviously a german killing and they're just lying and so on who why, who are you going to trust you're going to trust good old uncle joe or are you going to trust that that bastard hitler which one right and this is 43 so you know they they're obfuscating all the way down the line so they only finally admit to it as i said under gorbachev in 1989 they finally admit um soviet uh, authorship of the Catholic killings 
Um, but it is probably the sort of the headline in that whole process that I was talking about of this um, of this systematic sort of social decapitation. So this is the officer class. A lot of them are uh, nobility as well, Polish nobility. A lot of them are reserve officers, so they they are the elite of Polish society because they are they they will be doctors or they will be you know parliamentarians or they will be architects or whatever it is and reserve officers. So it really was um, you know to a large extent the cream the cream of Polish society being taken out and shot, and that's the reason they're doing it effectively because it's it's that it goes back to that idea of decapitation. This is the elite. These are the ones you want to get rid of if you want to control the mass effectively so there we go um but yeah i mean it's thoroughly brutal um and, and i think still i mean it is reasonably well known particularly after um andre vider did a film probably now about 10 years ago called cutting so andre vider is the great polish um film director um he did a film called cutting which was really good um that made my top 10 historical movie good uh, and rightly so. I mean, which I, listeners I, can go back and listen to a few. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very, it's a very good movie. If you can, I think from memory, it's all subtitled. But it, in a bit, as long as you can stand subtitles, then then do give it a watch. Uh, it's a tough watch, actually. It's a very tough watch. But I think as far as it goes, it's actually quite an um, an honest representation of how the process went, as far as far as we can tell from you know from the the historians and the available documentation and so on. So it's a really good representation. So I think that's helped to publicize it. Um, and secondarily, I'd say um, there's a brilliant museum in Warsaw, the Katyn Museum, um, which is hugely worth a visit for anyone going to, going to Warsaw. Um, I'll put all these links in, in the show notes for us. Yes, do. Yeah, uh, it's brilliant. It's quite brilliant. Um, has some English captioning, not enough for my taste. I've, I've complained about it before. But it's such a good museum and it's sort of spreading the word of, of this, you know, this horror, really, which is, is really emblematic of Poland's uh, fate, its grim fate in the 20th century. And it's quite right that it should be commemorated in that way. Now, one other uh, area I wanted to, to, to talk about before we could we can discuss maybe um, views of, of the, the pact today. But uh, during the 1930s, many many people certainly in britain viewed communism as the only bulwark against fascism and and in many cases you know with the appeasement policy you can completely see why they they thought and they probably weren't aware of what was going on in russia at least some of them weren't and and so they chose communism as the you know their their their, their ideology to follow we get the pact um the nazi soviet pact and it you know it shocks the world and reading your book, the mental gymnastics that some communists who, sort of employ, it, it's, it's, I mean, you, you can see this today with Ukraine and Putin and Russia, but some of the, the yeah, as I say, the mental gymnastics that mm. these guys, it's, it's extraordinary. And, and the Communist Party of Great Britain is quite comical, actually, reading. Yes, the comical party of Great Britain, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, prominent right. historians I mean, such as Eric Hobsbawm as well. Yeah, well, he was. He's. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't have any time for Hobsbawm, I'm afraid. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the the tragedy of the 1930s, of course, and you're seeing there's a sort of pale imitation of that now. The tragedy of that was was political polarization. So, you know, either side. You said you said there, and rightly so, that many on the left was effectively, you know, pushed further left. Because they saw communism as the only possible, you know, uh, vehicle to resist the rise of fascism, and then you've got lots of people on the right of politics who are pushed further to the right because they see fascism as the only, only bulwark against the rise of communism. So you have this, you know, this the collapse of the centre, which is not, you know, we we habitually talk about that within the context of the Weimar Republic in Germany in the 1920s and 30s that the centre collapsed, um, and and out of that comes this sort of um, you know, um, bipolar struggle between the German communists and the Nazis, which the Nazis win. Um, but you have the same problem, you know, across the world, or certainly across the Western world in the 1920s and 30s, which is this idea of polarization. Because those two ideologies, 
bubbling away at, at the fringes on left and right are so toxic and and, and at the same time so seductive um, that it sort of they draw people to them because the, the, the those in the center just you know see the other side as so awful that you, you know those are the only ones that are going to save us against it so that was that's that's one one phenomenon there it goes both ways um but um yeah with the with the communists it, it's a it's an interesting thing because you had um various narratives that would come out you know the communist party of great britain is essentially a sort of wholly owned subsidiary of the comintern which is run out of moscow right so we have this or they present an image to the world which is that they're all about workers rights and you know and the coming revolution and all this stuff but actually they're basically run you know effectively they're run via moscow um so they're an extension of the soviet union and all communist parties across the world are effectively extensions of the soviet union that's how it worked through the common term um so they are there to undermine capitalism to uh, foster political division and ultimately to to bring about revolution that's the, that's their purpose um so you have this sort of mixed messaging coming out so for the the, the great example here that i give in the book is that of harry pollitt who was the leader of the, of the british communist party at this time in september 1939 um and when um in the early sort of the first two weeks of the war he is uh basically on the side he's saying that poland has been attacked by the germans of course because the soviets have not yet attacked they attack on the 17th of september so he's saying germany's been um, um, poland has been attacked we must defend poland it's uh, you know it's a uh, um it's been attacked in this brutal fascist war and the war of conquest and and colonialization all of all the buzzwords came out of course um and then of course he here he has word by his commenter and handlers um that actually the soviets are going to invade and um and uh, he needs to get on side because it's actually it's actually the poles that are the big fascists uh and uh and 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 the the soviet union is going to invade itself and it's uh it's a war of liberation and you know so again he and he he's already put out a pamphlet that explains the communist party's position which goes to press i think from memory on the 16th of september uh, and on the 17th, of course, the Soviets invade and this new narrative comes out that he's got to he's got to damn the Poles and get on side with the effectively with the Germans and the Soviets together. So, you know, this is difficult for Pollitt and Pollitt, to his eternal credit, Pollitt says, no, I'm not doing that because he, he actually believed right? he wasn't going to be told that he had to turn 180 degrees on the whim of Moscow. Uh, change his public opinion, change you know, what the, the narrative he was given. He said, no, I'm not doing that. So he was effectively deposed as Communist Party leader, replaced by um, someone who was more amenable uh, and more willing to go along with the ideological gymnastics required. Uh, and Pollitt only Pollitt disappears from effectively from public life, only to reemerge after you guessed it, June 1941, when it's back to being you know the good old Soviet Union being attacked by the Nazi the, the nasty Nazis. So the narrative then is a, is a relatively clear one. But yeah, for a lot of people, the Nazi-Soviet pact and that period of Nazi-Soviet Nazi collaboration, because that's what it is for that 22 months, is really, really politically problematic in that modern, <laughs> horrible modern word. But it's really difficult for them to swallow. And, and, and people do have to make, you know, real ideological um, somersaults in their own minds to make sense of it. And some people don't. I mean, Pollitt refuses to. There are cases of suicides in amongst French communists um, because they'd spent so long sort of fulminating against the Nazis that the idea that their, their um, you know, political heroes could get in bed with these villains in Berlin was too much. And they couldn't, they couldn't do the necessary gymnastics and end up committing suicide. So this was a serious thing. Um, and it's one of those interesting aspects of it that kind of, you know, all of this gets forgotten. You know, and you, I think you were going to, you mentioned the sort of modern perception of the Nazi-Soviet pact. In the Western narrative, it's it's just the last chess move, you know, before the war breaks out in 39, and then it disappears. So this whole, this whole 22-month period that the pact ushers in, this collaboration between Nazi Germany and Soviet Union, um, that whole episode is kind of whitewashed we don't we don't understand it we don't and consequently we all everything that happens in that period doesn't fit the narrative so we we, we will 
we don't really understand you know why the winter war happens why the soviets you know attack the Finns. it doesn't fit into the western narrative of the war it's a fantastic episode it's an amazing story well worth reading but it doesn't fit the narrative so we consequently we don't talk about it you know, we're too busy talking about the phony war and then it's the attack west and it's this very western centric view there's a lot going on in central europe which actually makes sense that this is a period of collaboration between those regimes all of which is ushered in by the nazi soviet pact and the secret protocol so it's absolutely crucial that we understand it for what it is because it and but the problem is as i said it does not feature well enough or thoroughly enough or or in, in as thought through enough a way it just doesn't feature in the western narrative well it really should really and should. well there are of course links to your book i mean where do you think we are today with 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 putin's attack on ukraine do you think and obviously there's no kind of pact to talk about but is there um a, a kind of russian um treatment of you, you know, we know how they've treated the Baltic states, Finland, Poland, Bessarabia, which is Moldova, I think. Mm, um, is is Ukraine just simply another state that Russia just wants to expand into? This is this is its sort of expansionist nature. Mm. Well, I mean, because you know, Russia is not the Soviet Union. It's the it's the to some extent the heir of the Soviet Union, but it's it doesn't have the the same ideology as the Soviet Union had, to state the obvious. Um, but in a sense, a lot of the drivers of Kremlin policy, we can call it Kremlin policy, um, are essentially the same, which is to some extent is a, um, a strange hatred of the West, a jealousy of the West at the same time, and a hatred of the West, and a desire to shore up its own position. And it, and it has this, they still, now as then and this is where you can see ukraine ukraine uh, invasion at the moment you know writ large is that the kremlin then as now has this idea of um you know some states have the right to exist and some don't right so russia obviously is a historic nation that's how they see themselves they're a great power they have a right to exist they have a right by definition to dictate terms to other other nations so they have this you know you have this nefarious you know, vague concept of the near abroad, what we used to kind of roll our eyes and talk about the near, the, the, the Kremlin's near abroad, which basically means the Baltic states or the former, the former Soviet Union states, um, as if, you know, the Kremlin has some God-given right to dictate terms to, you know, to Lithuania and to Kazakhstan and the rest of them. Uh, and essentially that's what's going on in Ukraine because Ukraine was, was seen from the Kremlin perspective as the, you know, part of that, you know, inner core triumvirate, if you like, of Russia, you know, Belarus and Ukraine were seen from the Kremlin as the very core of, of, of Russian territory in the broadest sense. The Ruski Mir, as, as you know, the phrase that gets used a lot, the Russian world. And for one of those, so all right, it's hard enough for, for the Kremlin to swallow the fact that the Soviet Union collapsed. Remember Putin described that as the the, the, the greatest um, geopolitical disaster of the 20th century. Hello, quite a lot happened in the 20th century. Um, you might want to reconsider that one, uh, Vladimir. Um, but anyway, so he, that was hard enough for the Kremlin to swallow, the fact that the Soviet Union collapsed and these countries like, like the Baltic states are now members of NATO and the EU. That's tough for them to swallow to that extent, but that Ukraine should try and follow suit is literally unthinkable from a, from a Kremlin perspective. So in a sense, that drives what's going on now. This is, you know, what the invasion, and bear in mind, the invasion happened in 2014. This is a kind of a full-scale invasion. You had this, this piecemeal, small-scale invasion in, uh, of the Donbass in, and, and Crimea in 2014. What, what that was in 2014 was effect effectively the Kremlin sort of, you know, imagine grabbing hold of somebody's um, sleeve and saying, you're going nowhere, mate, right? You're not going away from me. You're staying here. That's what that's what that was, and then this is now the full scale, the full scale attack. But it's it's that mentality, and that's the same mentality as you had in '39, which was dressed up as what they called spheres of influence, right? That you know, big nations had the right to lord it over, to dictate terms to smaller nations. Smaller nations had no agency, had no sovereignty, were not permitted to you know uh, uh, be in charge of their own destiny, and so on. 
So that mentality certainly hasn't changed. There's a direct line of continuity in that sense, in spite of everything that's changed in the intervening, you know, what are we, 80 years? There's a direct line there, which is, and you, and you can see an awful lot of historical, you know, parallels and similarities. I'm, I sort of hesitate to use that, that hoary old phrase about history repeating itself, but it's certainly echoing at the moment, you know, with the massacres, with the deportations from Ukraine, um, with that, that whole mentality that, you know, that they see the, the Ukrainian people as, you know, unworthy and, and, and at the same time, they see that they, they're publicly proclaiming, pro proclaiming them to be their brothers. It's very, very peculiar. There's a lot going on, uh, you know, in the Kremlin mind at the moment, and, and not much of it is very healthy. Well, Roger, thank you so much. It's been fantastic. Um, for our listeners, it's the Devil's Alliance, Devil's Apostrophe Alliance. That's right. And thank you again for your time, for your revisit to the My pleasure. podcast. Thank you, Ollie. All the best. And hello to all the listeners out there, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Oh, that's nice. That was certainly a subject that excites Roger's passions, but I did enjoy listening to him talk about a part of Europe that those of us in Britain and other Western countries should certainly know more about. As I mentioned in the introduction, I've got plenty of decent content upcoming from royalty to politics and war post-45 and writing history today. I do hope you can join me. Thank you and good night.